Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by BioOptimizers P3OM. P3OM uses a patented probiotic strain. P3OM is used to help fight gut parasites and pathogens. If you head over to p3om.com forward slash human, you can see their video of it breaking down a piece of steak in a Petri dish. BioOptimizers is confident you will like their product, so they offer a money back guarantee. Please visit their site to see the guarantee details before purchasing. If you would like to give them a try, head over to the letter P, the number three, the letters om.com forward slash human and enter the code human10 for an extra 10% off your next purchase. Now on to the next topic. Welcome. Um, I I thought we were going to do this a long time ago for some reason. I don't know. And then maybe we just got to reschedule. Is that, do I remember that correct or no? You never know. We might have connected while I was still at HVMN, possibly, because I did. There was a point um, where I was working there and I did a number of podcasts um, just sort of generally educating in around like exogenous ketones. So we, we may have connected then, but um, I was just, Zach and I were just talking about all of our overlapping interests in terms of like rowing and like the nutrition stuff. So I wouldn't have been surprised if we had this teed up, but um, I'm glad that I had a chance to meet Zach at the Metabolic Health Summit and sort of get this get this on the road again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was there, I was there for about an hour. <laughs> I just kind of lived down the street. I went up and said hi. And, oh, nice. Uh, but uh, anyway, it's good to have you on. So. I, I understand you do have a rowing background. Uh, obviously, you know, I do this little concept two stuff where I've been doing it for the last several years. I'm kind of uh, uh, you know, maybe transitioning away from that a little bit, quite honestly, but I, I still appreciate what it, what it takes to uh, be competitive at that. It's a, quite a, a physiologically demanding thing, not to diminish what Zach's doing either, but they're both uh, challenging. So yeah, um, I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for what you do, the super short distance stuff, because that's, Again, doing one, the 100 meters is completely different to doing the 2,000 meters, which is what um, the international racing distance is. So that was more the, um, the distance that I would have competed over. But I do think, especially now I'm looking more in training more in endurance sports, that rowing has this horrible, painful combination of power and endurance that's, um, that forces you to push yourself in both of those domains. So you do have to do the really long sessions, but then also... Um, doing the explosive stuff to get off the start and to get over the line as well. So it's challenging. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, like the 500 meter row, I, you know, like I, I hit a 114 at 50 years old, which was, which was, you know, that world record at the time. And uh, I've done a halfway decent two one K and I may play with a two K and see if I can get close to six minutes or even break that barrier. Cause no one over 50 has done that yet. So that might be really? something to, huh. to mess with uh, as I'm kind of changing my changing. I'm, I'm kind of leaning out, getting a little lighter, and maybe more, maybe more, you know, able to do the longer stuff. Yeah, that would suit the longer stuff better, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, I can do, I, you know, I can do a 630 pretty much without training. So, I mean, it's obviously, but that last 30 seconds is a, is a long ways, as you, as you know, moving oh, yeah. it even three seconds can be tremendous. So we'll just see what shakes out once I, if I decide to do that. But, um, and you rode, I guess, did you row competitively collegiately or where was your, what was your. Yeah, uh, so um, Zach and I, again, we're sort of discussing, uh, I got into rowing because my dad did adventure rowing. He rode across the Atlantic and I rowed, um, and when I was 12, I was the youngest person to row the English Channel. So I rowed for a really long time. I did row, um, I rowed up through high school, but I represented um, Great Britain as a junior, as an under 23, um, did varsity, the Oxford Cambridge collegiate boat race, and then was on the senior international team for four years as a sort of semi-professional athlete. And I won won the world championships twice and won two silver medals at the world championships over, over the years I competed internationally. So I was, um, you know, training as part of the Olympics squad, basically. Yeah. Why don't we talk about that a little bit too, just in the context of kind of like diet and nutrition, then we can maybe jump into this year, especially with the exogenous ketone stuff. But I'm kind of curious because like, as we kind of shared here, you kind of bridged the gap between Sean and me where like, you're rowing like Sean, but you're rowing longer. And I'm obviously not rowing, but I'm running really long. So it's Sean's like the real short, real fast. I'm like really slow all day long. <laughs> you're kind of somewhere in between. But uh, um, what is it? I mean, you Were you following a high fat, low carb diet or a keto diet when you were competing at that world championship level? Or how did your kind of, I guess, maybe evolution and nutrition kind of play out? Sure. Um, so it was an interesting, it was an interesting sort of journey because I initially, when I was first competing on the under 23 team i was competing in the unrestricted weight category so i just i could focus on just fueling training and you know i was young at that point in my early 20s and so hadn't really taken that deeper dive into nutrition i was still studying at school and had a lot, lot on my plate so i'd say i was probably eating like a pretty conventional diet for an endurance athlete at that point you know focused around like getting plenty of carbohydrates and protein and probably lower in fat um and then just as I came to the end of my under 23 career, I swapped into being a lightweight category. So it meant that I had to lose um, around about 10 kilograms. Um, I was under sort of around about 10% body fat. So I made this really big dramatic shift in my body composition. Um, <clears throat> and I did that mainly through caloric restriction and maintaining the, the training load. And it was interesting because the first year or so that I did that, my body tolerated it really well. And, you know, my um, numbers, everything was getting better. And then over time, it got harder and harder to maintain the weight and also the quality of the training. And especially being a woman, you hear all about um, reduced energy deficiency, uh, REDS, I can't remember what the D stands for, um, energy deficiency syndrome, something like that. But um, <clears throat> I actually, a couple of, after a couple of years of being in this weight restricted category, was having problems with my hormones and ended up, the team doctor ended up putting me on um, estrogen replacement. And um, that continued for the sort of next two or three years that I was still competing in that lightweight category, really struggling to maintain fueling and like physical health, not just, uh, you know, just was getting ill a lot. And it made, especially the winter season, like a very big struggle. So um, at that point, and the way that the international rowing season works, and I've heard you speak a little bit about this, Zach, as well, is that it, I would never have had time in my season to really like keto adapt. Because once you break into the, the national squad, 
if you fall drop out of the system it's quite hard to break back in so the hardest thing to do is to get into the training center and then you've got support of um, teammates but also um, coaching support physiology physiology and physiotherapy support all these things that make your training a lot easier and so once I'd kind of got in the world championships happens in the summer you get a two-week break then you're back to training and the first assessment that keeps you in the training center is in like October November um, from the from the break having been in maybe September so um, the way that the assessments worked meant that I really didn't get the time to as I learned more and more about ketogenic nutrition and which I think I would have um, probably used over at least the winter training block um, which is a heavier endurance training block as I learned more and more about that I just did knew more you know from the science that I didn't really have time to get my body to adapt to that but especially in retrospect, looking at the, uh, my caloric intake and how I structured my calories around my training um, and knowing about um, natural ketone production, I actually suspect that I was in such a calorie deprived state at certain points that I was pretty regularly in ketosis. Um, and the way that I, my eating pattern shifted, it was interesting because when I first started losing the weight, I took out took out fat and I focused really a lot on, I had huge plates of vegetables. And then as I was struggling more and more with my hormones and my weight, everything portions got smaller and smaller and smaller. And it was doing, you know, these 20, 24 hour training weeks on like really not that much stuff. So it's probably not that surprising that I got sort of somewhat sick by the end of it. But, um, when you, when you're on the treadmill of the system and bound by the competition schedule, um, and, and also being in that training center where you can't afford really a drop off of performance, like as, whereas if you were working with a personal coach, off-site you could work with them to change your training we were actually even on a centralized training central training program that everyone had to do and there was quite little um, personalization of that which I think is a shame the British rowing team and as, as well as the British cycling team are quite um, have got a long history of success but you'd think that within that that they would be looking at an athlete and being like well you know you're you're really good at endurance we need to work more on your power or vice versa you're very powerful but we need to work on your endurance but actually they had this kind of semi one-size-fits-all training program <clears throat> that was very rarely modified um and so i think if i again if i'd been really changing my nutrition i'd have had to change my training for a period of time as well and i couldn't couldn't do that so a lot of things made it difficult to be as in control of my nutrition and as i'd have wanted and the more I learned about it with my research, which was sort of taking place at the same time, the more I realized that it wasn't necessarily the most practical thing for me to make such a big change. But it was, it was kind of neat studying ketone metabolism uh, alongside and, and, and calorie restriction and fasted and ketogenic dieting alongside being basically permanently starving. That um, <laughs> so made it more relevant. Yeah, you know, it is interesting. We had a guy on the other day, John Welburn, and he uh, was a nine-year NFL, National Football League uh, uh, player for a while. And he was saying, because I asked him, I was like, you know, how much attention to individual needs is there at that level? Or is there such a body of potential, uh, you know, people that are at a, such a high level that they can kind of just plug in a system. And if you don't fit in that system, it doesn't matter. So you got three, four more guys right behind you who will fit right in. Yeah. And you said it kind of was hit or miss. Some teams are a little more personalized and kind of go through that, that more rigorously and say, okay, this person could be great, but we're going to have to do this a little differently with them in the weight room, a little bit differently with them in nutrition than what we would do with like the average person. And it's really interesting to hear all that and kind of get a feel, but uh, yeah, you know, it's tough, I think. And especially at like 
the sport you were doing too, like you said, it's like that combination where you can do huge volume, like 20, 24 hours a week is massive training load, but it's also got that, that kind of that intensity component as well, where your window between sessions is so tight. You almost have to like, you, you almost have to just go with what was working for you or what people are telling works for you, or you get left in the wayside and never back on top. I always used to think that um, the way that the, the training was set up there was that it actually didn't necessarily select for the people that would be best at competing at the Olympic distance for rowing because you had to be very um, robust against injury and you had to be very able to complete this like heavy endurance training load with these interspersed intensity uh, like throughout the week. You had to be able to survive that in order to get selected and then compete when actually you had some people who were very um, either technically talented or very powerful perhaps who might not have really suited that training plan and then not made it through. So yeah, I think I kind of identify with that comment you just made about the, sometimes when you've got a system and you've got ranks of people ready to just like step up in, it doesn't always, you know, if you're working with a big number of people, it doesn't always make sense to personalize. Although sort of having been now in the like Silicon Valley biohacking space and speaking to like, not only companies, but also like military units and people who are, re who are um, at the cutting edge of trying to figure out like how to make everything work best for the individual. I can see that the way we're able to collect data across the different, uh, so many more metrics and then integrate that in ways that's meaningful for the individual. I think that, you know, maybe in 15 years, or, you know, not, not, just around the corner but perhaps there'll be a time where we'll have more effective like dashboarding for individual athletes but one of the big things for me is like who who are you empowering to make those and educating to make those changes is it the responsibility going to lie with the athlete or do you need like a highly motivated coach um or someone who can just pay attention pay attention to each of those individuals because i think again um, something that maybe you have and or you have with your clients is that ability to work one-on-one -on -one with the individual as well as again if you're working with a squad of people and you're trying to get as many of them possible through this training program then you just have less bandwidth for optimizing that one person mm -hmm. yeah yeah and I think like one of the reasons I probably gravitated towards a high fat low carb diet too was you know ultra marathon running it's grown a lot in the last few years but it when I got into it and even so even to a degree today, it's still kind of the wild, wild west in terms of like what we know and what we don't know and what we think we know. And, <laughs> and so it's like, you know, then, and you're also in a situation where oftentimes you're your own coach and you're designing your own training and kind of picking your races and your schedules to a degree too. So, you know, you know, for me, it was like when I decided to kind of transition over, I think it was maybe a little easier than the average athlete because for one, I'm already doing a support, a sport that is like, thoroughly anchored in like zone one and zone two, even at competition level yeah. and the longer events within the sport. And, and then kind of like what you said too, it's like endurance athletes are interesting because you can really, you can move the needle a pretty good bit and just being fat adapted. I mean, I'm, there's high carb athletes I'm sure that are putting out, you know, ketogenic level blood ketones at times in their training, especially if they're doing any sort of like kind of fasted long run or anything like that, uh, that, they, they see some of those numbers creep up, but it's interesting when you kind of add the nutrition component to it. And then I guess that the, the next step to that would be adding the exogenous ketone <laughs> component to it, which we can dive yeah. into, I think a bit too, if you want. Yeah. So I think um, just to sort of close out that sort of point, really, it's like every, I don't, I think one of the weaknesses of science as it's set up right now is that we'll run a athlete performance, athletic performance study with like 12 people, 
and you know typically we're going for as as homogenous as similar a population as possible and i think that whilst we can come up with guidelines based on those experiments as to what seems to like work for most people there's a lot so much individual variability between athletes of different genders different ages different fiber types different um like ethnic backgrounds and how they you know your gut microbiome depending on where you've been brought up like there's so many things that can influence how you respond to training and nutrition um you know your own uh, how you mentally approach nutrition for example even there's so much variation that it's kind of dangerous and it seems a little bit irrelevant to me to to try and enforce one practice commonly across the board or or tell anyone that what they're doing is just rubbish and doesn't work because like <laughs> clearly if it's working for them and for you and getting better performance then that's that then that's fine and great you know i think where especially with nutrition the problem comes where people get a bit evangelical about their beliefs and try and because it's worked for them and they're trying to spread the love and share it and it's um it rubs people up the wrong way a little bit but it doesn't mean that it's not actually move the needle in terms of performance for that one person because we have to remember as well that it, to get the best performance you have to be healthy to train um and if there's a there's a whole chunk of your day where you're not running or training for the sport so if you can improve your quality of life and quality of sleep or and quality of recovery then the net effect on training might be better anyway so there's a just it's pretty complex and mm -hmm. I, I try and try and not get too dogmatic about things like that and so i think that when we discuss how exogenous ketones might be useful for athletes and which different types of athletes and when should people be using them people are often looking for a simple answer especially because this is a new concept but actually i guess i'd say that you know i've been researching this for eight or nine years now and we're still um we still have a lot of questions to answer there's still a lot of unknowns and I anticipate that there'll still be a lot of individual differences in how people respond to exogenous ketones in the same way that there's probably differences in people uh, responding to the ketogenic diet. Yeah, no, I think you're, you're spot on. We had uh, Dr. Paul Mason on not too long ago, and I think it was uh, Dr. Mark Bugs talk, talked about some of that too, just like kind of the, the really interesting stuff you get when you, you dive into the individual athlete versus kind of the masses. And you know, I, I like hearing the individual athlete dissection a lot because as a, as an endurance coach myself, I'm working on the individual level. So I kind of have maybe a little bit of a luxury in the sense that someone comes to me and we look at, well, what's going well and what's not, and we can really fine tune it to what, what has been working from them and then maybe discover a few new things that will work for them and versus yeah. trying to kind of prescribe something to like 300 endurance athletes and cross your fingers and hope that they all come away happy <laughs> or even right writing you know a number of the people who are super anti-ketogenic diet they're the people that are writing the like position guidelines for practice mm -hmm. and so you can see that they might get frustrated by people being like well i have you know four or five or six athletes and i've done this with them and it works and they're like yeah well great but we're trying to come up with mm -hmm. guidelines uh, that are for everyone and actually maybe even focusing more towards elite athletes which is like actually not that many of the whole pool of people that compete you know super elite short distance olympic athletes yeah of course you're going to have different nutritional guidelines to the huge portion of the pyramid of people that are like serious amateurs and training like diligently and hard and thoughtfully and mindfully but you know not at that super elite level where where it's their profession mm -hmm. yeah yeah well let's let's jump into some ketone discussion if you don't mind i think like one thing to maybe start for folks who aren't too familiar with 
exogenous ketones or maybe just know it by name? Like what, if you can describe kind of in simple terms, maybe like what's the difference between say an exogenous ketone versus someone who goes and gets fat adapted and is producing relatively high levels of ketones in their own body? Sure. So um, when you become fat adapted, you deplete your carbohydrate stores that are, that are in your body and you're not eating very much dietary carbohydrate. So you really, really, the first thing that happens is that you're boosting the release and, and burning of fat in the body. And once that kind of gets to like a certain rate and your, your body gets good at that, then some of that fat's going to be converted by the liver into ketone bodies. So when you have, when you're in a state of endogenous or, or um, natural, uh, I don't really know, natural is maybe not the right word, but an endogenous self-produced ketosis, then all of the ketones in your blood are coming from the result of that high fat burning level. Um, by comparison with exogenous ketones, you can actually just consume like a, an external source of ketones in a drink or a bar or something like that. And there's actually ketones inside that food product and those get into your blood and, and your body can still burn those just in the same way as it would burn uh, ketones that you're making itself. But one of the critical differences is it's not coming from your own fat stores. So often when uh, I think the biggest point of confusion is people use the word ketosis. Now, scientifically, ketosis just means there are ketones in your blood and you're burning them. But most people in the keto community use the word ketosis to kind of also encompass this ketogenesis process, this making ketones process. And actually, um, and so when you use the word like that, you're, you're kind of inferring that you're doing this fat release, fat burning, ketone production, ketones in the blood. And so, especially in the weight loss community, people argue that exogenous ketones don't put you into ketosis. Well, in fact, they do raise the levels of ketones in your blood, but it's not increasing your natural fat burning or come through that pathway in the same way. So um, you have to think about exogenous ketones as like a um, keto compliant Gatorade, right? It's like when you drink a Gatorade, you're putting rapid release sugar into your blood and that can be used as an energy in, in your body. And when you drink exogenous ketones, it's like giving your body this extra source of energy from the ketones, but it's not necessarily affecting your fat burning or fat release per se, uh, from the rest of your, from the rest of your body and that natural process. So, um, it's, we, we know that some of the effects of, um, being in ketosis, may come from just having ketones in the blood. So there are some things which you might be able to get from drinking an exogenous ketone drink that are similar to what would happen if you're on a ketogenic diet. But it's really important to point out that when you're on a ketogenic diet and when you're fat adapted, you've also got that low insulin state and the dietary carbohydrates. There's big changes in how the body is working that you're not necessarily replicating all of that with exogenous ketones. So let's take diabetes, for example. If you're using ketogenic diet to treat type 2 diabetes like they do with Verta Health, this, uh, the telemedicine program, they've seen fantastic results in blood glucose control and um, lowering fasting insulin and helping people lose weight. Now, I think a big part of that is because the people on that program are cut down their sugar intake and then eating less dietary carbohydrate and that lowers their glucose and lowers their insulin. So if you took those people and just gave them an exogenous ketone drink, you probably wouldn't get, and they didn't change their diet in any other way. They carried on eating their high carbohydrate diet. You probably wouldn't see such a profound change in the glucose and insulin levels. You may see some change, and that's something that's an area of active research now because we actually see that exogenous ketones can help with lowering blood sugar a little bit in the short term. 
Um, but it certainly doesn't completely replace being on the ketogenic diet for those endpoints. But when we're thinking about athletic performance, for all of the reasons that we've just discussed, you know, whether it's practical reasons or personal preference reasons or, or what, you know, this type of sport that you do, it doesn't always make sense for athletes to be on a ketogenic fat adapted type diet. And so in that setting, uh, and this is how I've used exogenous ketones a lot myself, you can have energy from ketones and BHB and maybe get some of the recovery benefits, um, body composition benefits in terms of lean muscle mass anyway of, of BHB, the molecule, without having to change your diet. So you can have energy from carbohydrate in your system and energy from ketones in your system as well. So we're thinking mainly about those two things and at this point, thinking a little bit less about what it does to fat metabolism, but we, we can go into that as well if you're interested. So what exogenous ketones create is this brand new metabolic state where you can have ample carbohydrate and ample ketones at the same time. Um, but of course also can use them as a low carbohydrate athlete as well, but it just gives you this whole other lever, almost like another food group, another type of energy that you can consume as part of your performance strategy. Yeah, that's what I was going to kind of ask was like with uh, exogenous ketones, it's like, it's like ent- introducing another fuel substrate. And I like, I like the way you described it. It's like the, the, the keto version of Gatorade where it's like, yeah, you're bringing, just like when you're taking in Gatorade, you're bringing in an, an external fuel source versus taking out of your, your, your muscle glycogen or burning fat. So like it is kind of fit that, fit that world a bit. Does it do anything different that we know yet in the research from a digestive standpoint? Because I know for athletes, a lot of times, especially in my sport of extreme endurance, it's you, you get to this point where like you can only digest or tolerate certain amounts of food or of calories per hour before it, your body rebels from just overload because you can't process it fast enough. And yeah. you're kind of like in this position where you're guaranteed to run a calorie deficit. So you're trying to minimize that perhaps, but not necessarily account for all of it during the activity itself. Is there any efficacy to like an exogenous ketone to kind of help supplement that in order to raise the amount of energy you can take in during any specific event? Or is it just kind of add to the already finite total? To be honest, um, nobody's really, nobody's done a study that answers that question. So a lot of this will be my educated guess. So with, um, glucose and carbohydrate uptake one of the strategies that people use to try and overcome that like limitation in the amount that you can get in is by using different lots of different um, carbohydrate sources they call it multiple transportable carbohydrates so you've got glucose and fructose and dextrose and all of those use different transporters in the gut so it's more helpful to get more into your system if you can use different routes of entry and so i suspect that ketones using a completely different set of transporters, a completely different route of entry could well be something that would be um, beneficial to kind of add, add to the total amount of energy pool that you could take in during, during an endurance event. But I mean, that's, that's educated guesswork at this point. Sure. Hey, Brianna, let me ask you just about uptake because, uh, you know, uh, what do we know about the, because I know there's different uh, ex, uh, exogenous ketone formulations, esters and different salts and whatnot. Um, the uptake rates, how quickly it appears in the blood, you know, for utilization, you know, like I said, glucose, still, even if we ingest it, still there's a, there's a period of time where it has to get through our digestive system and be absorbed uh, into the serum. So how long does it take for ketones and does it vary by, by formulation? Yeah, it looks like esters are the quickest to get into the blood. 
um, typically we see like a very uh, rapid spike. So within 30 minutes of taking, a, you know, a regular sized dose, which would be around 20 to 25 grams of ketone ester, you within 30 minutes of that, you could see an increase to levels of like two to four millimoles of, of ketones within, within that first 30 minutes. Salts tend to be less, um, uh, not only a slower onset by maybe like another 30 of minutes or so. So you maybe have the peak around about an hour or just after, but also salts are an order of magnitude less effective in terms of BHB delivery. Um, because part of the problem is that most salts are mixes of two optical isoforms of BHB. So uh, some molecules in biology have this property called handed, the chirality, handedness. In the same way as we have left and a right hand with four fingers and a thumb, they and then don't then mirror images and don't overlay. We have um, that ketones have that property, and our enzymes in our body are used to only just dealing with one of those isoforms. So um, what happens when you have the salt and you have the mix of the two is half of it is um, not being able to be used as a fuel source. So um, it may be a part of that, that reason as to why you also don't get very high levels with the salt. So just to directly compare the two, typically um, the peak ketone level after ketone salts about 0.8 to 1 millimole increases, whereas with the esters, as I said, 2 to 4 or even higher than that sometimes um, in terms of the millimoles increase of BHB that, that you can deliver. Um, yeah, so the other issue perhaps with salts is, and I, I'm not sure exactly why, but my, my hypothesis is because they are um, very concentrated, so you've got this big mineral load in the gut as well, that might be slowing down absorption if you've got this very concentrated um, uh, solution. But also with that, it somewhat limits the amount that you can take because of GI issues as well. So, you know, like when you use sodium bicarbonate pre, um, like a sprint effort, if you take too much of that, it can be kind of disaster pants. The salts are similar to that, you know, and if you use too much, then it's, um, it's got a bit of a risk of GI issues. Yeah, and uh, for the sodium bicarbonate, sort of buffer your blood so you don't develop too much uh, acid in there, and hopefully you can get to that pain threshold a little. <laughs> Interestingly, the ketone salts do a similar thing. So it's, it's kind of interesting, and we're starting to tease out the difference between different supplements, ketone supplements, and when they might be useful. The salts mildly uh, make your blood more alkaline, so they slightly increase the pH and they would buffer against an acid. As well as the esters, because they've not got this extra mineral load, they just deliver BHB, which is a free acid. They slightly acidify your blood, so they're working. Um, it, you know, in some ways, they're the same in that they deliver BHB, but in other ways, they're kind of different. So, um, lots of questions to answer here about how the different supplements might be useful and in what different contexts. What studies have been done uh, on performance now looking at that? Do we have, can we, can we look at numbers on different types of whether it's in just power athletes and exogenous ketones and do we see, do we see an actual benefit in both fat adapted and the standard high carb athlete if there's a difference? Yeah, so to answer that last part first, unfortunately, there are yet, as yet no studies published. Um, I think there's one in publication, but no studies published looking at exogenous ketones in the high fat athletes. So pretty much all of the studies are done in athletes on normal Western higher carbohydrate diets. Um, and then you, you could sort of divide the studies into a couple of buckets, those with esters and, and those with salts. Broadly speaking, those with salts have shown like null effect on performance. Um, 
which you know a lot of the performance tests that are used are quite short um, I'm trying I don't think there's anything longer than 15 minutes been done with assault and actually I'm not necessarily that surprised that they're not helping with the shorter shorter uh, duration performance I'd expect um, <clears throat> them to be more effective for for longer bouts of exercise so uh, maybe maybe four or five six studies using salts no nothing conclusive coming out there um, partly maybe because of study design and then esters um, one different there's two different types of ketone ester um one of the types has been only been studied one time and unfortunately it was really badly tolerated and all of the athletes were like nauseous and sick and all of that and so it didn't help with performance in that category um that test that was done the other ketone ester is the one that i worked on in my time in oxford um that's called a bhb mono ester and that ester has been studied in like three or four performance studies the one that we ran over at Oxford showed a 2% improvement in performance of 30 minute time trial cycling. Um, but that's not yet been replicated outside of Oxford. So there was a null effect on a 10 kilometer time trial. Um, and then there was also a protocol that used intermittent running with like a soccer player population. And there was um, no, no, again, no decrease in performance, but no obvious benefit to that sprint performance. So again, you know, maybe, maybe that would not be that surprising. One thing that was interesting that came out of that study, though, was that cognitive performance was preserved throughout the, um, throughout the exercise test with the ketone and not with the uh, control carbohydrate condition. And so, you know, I kind of look at this as we're really the very beginning of this field and um, performance, especially in something like a team sport, it's kind of a holistic combination of the cognitive performance and the physical endurance, but also sprint performance. There's so many different parameters that go into that, that um, it's quite possible that over a game or over a season, for example, in basketball, where they're playing a number of games over the whole season in the NBA in very close succession, <clears throat> that um, maybe there'd be a, a improvement over the whole season. One uh, area that, again, is very, very early, but very promising is the use of ketones post-exercise for recovery. Um, and there was a very interesting study that came out of a university in Belgium where they did a three-week overload uh, protocol with some you know, moderately trained students and they really like whacked up their training volume and broke them. And they were looking at the hormonal and uh, physiological markers during training. And um, in the control group, everything sort of started to deteriorate. They couldn't get their maximum heart rate so high. They were secreting cortisol and stress hormones. And a lot of that was um, mitigated by having ketone esters post-exercise. So you know, to go back to the comment that I made about it being a new food group, a new macronutrient group, we spent a lot of time dialing up like pre and post exercise carbs and pre exercise protein. No post exercise protein. Yes. You know, or BCAAs, all of these little nuances around like when to use different things. So I suspect that there will be niche roles for exogenous ketones in different sports, both pre and post exercise. Yeah, that's really interesting because I was going to ask about that, like where we were at from the recovery standpoint versus the performance standpoint. I've been, uh, I've been working with uh, this company S Fuels for a, for a while now this year, and they are, they work with uh, Dr. Dan Plews, who's kind of in the, yeah. the periodized carbohydrate, uh, low carb, high fat kind of like world of research, and and I, they were mentioning that with uh, exogenous ketones, you know, the most promising spot from just something to bring to market at the point is likely in the recovery world right now in terms of being able to back it up with any significant amount of amount of research. And, 
that, that, that makes it way more intriguing, I think, in the sense that when you watch some of the pro sports that have been trying to utilize that, because uh, I think it, it often gets confused. Like I think the most obvious would be like the Tour de France that started and they, they oftentimes pioneer a lot of the stuff where they're trying to stay a bit ahead of the science. But like, you know, if you look at it, like, oh, they're taking exogenous ketones, maybe, maybe there's something to it from a performance standpoint. But for an event like that, it's more like who can recover better as much as yeah. it is who can be really great on any one day. So yeah. perhaps they're not as far ahead as one would think. They're just kind of targeting what is more proven than anything else at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think the what's interesting is the research group that um, published that really interesting recovery paper, it was actually headed up by one of the um, one of the sort of lead physiologists for one of the cycling teams. So I suspect that he's taking back into the lab something that he's been doing in practice, in training and in racing with the team. Um, and certainly speaking to to those teams in my in my old, with, when I was with HVMN, the company that was supplying a number of the teams, um, and speaking to the researchers doing that, I think that for them it's like yes, because I mean, and it's really interesting. So ketones can help with oxidative stress and inflammation, and with potentially with glycogen repletion, and potentially with maintaining a sort of a, less of a catabolic state that can get induced by these very repeated intense day after day after day efforts. So um, yeah, like scientifically and mechanistically, there's a lot there that makes sense. You know, we are, there's also a lot that makes sense with the performance stuff, but it's not been sort of, especially having been an elite athlete myself, right? I think about how I thought about um, my world championship final and, you know, the biggest pieces that went into that puzzle were the quality of the training I could do in the run up to the event, the, um, the quality of the sleep and the nutrition and hydration in the days before the event and then supplements on the day of the event. That's really, to me, it was just really small pieces, you know, even just the quality of my warm up and, you know, the, I would, we would do hormonal priming. So like medicine ball slams to maintain our cortisol. You know, we do lots of little things. And so for me, the add value add of any one supplement on top of that would have to be, it would have to be really, I have to feel really confident about it, knowing that it would make a really big difference to, to be even using that. Cause by that point, when you're super elite, you kind of, you, do, you put the, everything in place so that you can just go out and execute. And um, as far as sport performance goes in the Olympic distance events, most of them, most evidence-based things are caffeine, nitrates, beta-alanine, creatine, um, and have I said everything? I might have missed something. Did I say nitrates? Caffeine? I think so, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's three or four, four, four or five things that are recommended and that are suitably backed by evidence. Um, I think it'll take a while, and I'm not super confident that ketones would ever get to that point where it would make that list of something where it's like, yeah, all of the evidence for most people stacks up that you should always be using this. And the other kind of consideration as well is just sort of um, practicality because at the moment exogenous ketones are pretty expensive and hard to come by. Um, You know, and I think for me, would I spend $30 maybe if it was my world championship final, but you know, it's, there's a bit of friction to, to that. And also they taste pretty bad and we're working on it, but they do taste pretty bad as well. So it's not, not necessarily the easiest thing to just implement. pre mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, is, uh, Brianna, is there any, any deleterious uh, impact on exogenous ketone supplementation, athletic performance when it comes to utilization of glucose, 
uh, when you need to use glucose? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I guess from my experience, not only using them, but also looking at the data as well, um, all of the papers that have come out at, with that more intense model. So there's a paper that did a VO2 max test, for example, um, a paper that did a two kilometer row um, and the sprinting study that I mentioned with the soccer players earlier. Nothing there has shown a significant decrease in that high end sprint performance. Now, um, the people who don't necessarily believe in this kind of supplement would say that the, the mechanism is that ketones inhibit glycolysis. And we do see signs that this is happening because we see lower levels of lactate in people taking exogenous ketones. So would infer that you can get, you may be uh, dampening down, inhibiting, whatever word you want to use, you might be getting less energy from that glycolytic pathway. But the way I like to think about it is kind of like, um, it's like flow through a tap, flow through a faucet. So long as you can still get the energy that you need to do the exercise at that intensity, then, then you can still complete the exercise at that intensity. It doesn't matter if you're inhibiting glycolysis. So um, the answer to your question is possibly an effect, possibly an effect on glucose metabolism. Does that map up to a decrease in, in performance? We haven't seen that consistently yet. Um, maybe for very super short sprint um, efforts, so maybe like 10 seconds or, or less than that, where you're really, really glycolytic and you really couldn't be using ketones at all, then, then maybe you'd see a decrease. But um, there's nothing hard and fast published in the data yet that sort of shows that. What, um, I, I don't know if you uh, deal much with this. I know guys like Don D'Agostino and stuff talk about ketones for health, brain health in particular. Is that anything that, that exogenous ketones have seen success with in a, in a significant way at this point? I know there's some rumors of, of that going on. What, what's it? Oh man, this is like a super, super exciting field and one that I work in a lot more now than I did at my previous job. So previously working with HVMN and we were looking purely from an athletic performance standpoint, but now uh, I work at a research institute called the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. And we're pretty much purely focused on using ketones for health and healthy aging specifically. So um, a big part of what we look at is the effects of ketones on uh, the aging brain and also the aging muscle. And um, <clears throat> we're seeing some very promising things in our animal models. We're really looking at the basic biology, but even now there are people who are doing this kind of work in humans. Um, so recently a paper came out within the last month or so, a paper came out in quite a good journal called PNAS that looked at the, um, the way that our brain connectivity between different parts of our brain changes as we age. And it showed that as we age, our brain gets less good at connecting different parts of, of the brain. It gets less um, functional stability, they called it. And they induced ketosis either by fasting, by the ketogenic diet or by ketone esters. And they showed that this could actually help restore that connectivity between different brain areas in people who were, in people who were older and, and sort of uh, the functionality was impaired there. So this was just a, this is just a super recent current example of of this research that's being done. But there's also people um, studying it specifically in Alzheimer's disease and showing that if you give exogenous ketones, you can help to provide the brain with energy because an Alzheimer's brain is typically a little bit energy deprived because uh, their brains are less good at burning glucose, and so you can give the brain energy from ketones and, and help to restore that that energy deficit. So it's a very active area of research. It's one. That that I'm personally engaged with on the on the basic science level, and there are a number of human studies going on now. And actually, <clears throat> at, 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 
at HVMN, we were running a study that was looking at the effects of ketones on uh, cognitive performance in hypoxia, which had some really um, interesting findings suggesting a protective effect of ketones in that high stress environment. So um, yeah, I think that, that that's maybe the next sort of, sort of frontier that we'll see more broad um, acceptance and use of exogenous ketones. I, I am less bullish about someone like young and healthy and not functionally impaired like myself say being able to like supercharge my brain because i think there's a big difference between rescuing a deficit and improving on something that's already functioning quite well um so i think it's not necessarily going to be the limitless pill to to make someone who's doing all right even better but when you start to either get a decline with age or um have some kind of disease then maybe this could be helpful yeah, you know, you actually brought something up that I was going to ask about in regards to just the variance in diet and exogenous ketones. And I appreciate this is all going to be speculation at this point, since the studies have been done on higher moderate carb athletes and not keto adapted athletes. But my thought with any of this stuff that would maybe promote like, a, or would, would, would be more kind of in the line of like the, the fat adapted world is that like, if you're someone who's following a moderate or high carb diet, it stands to reason you probably have a bigger margin for improvement in terms of fat oxidation rates. So do you suspect then that that community would maybe benefit more from an exogenous ketone versus someone who's already you know, pretty, pretty metabolically sound at using fat as their primary fuel source? Yeah, that's an interesting question because if you're constantly on a high fat diet, in the animal models anyway, in, in the muscle, in some human models, the, because you're kind of providing them the mitochondria with so much um, potential energy in the form of acetyl-CoA, the mitochondria actually starts to get less efficient uh, and does this increased process called uncoupling. So, I mean, it depends whether we're using efficiency in the sort of like strictest, like energetic scientific term, or whether when we're talking about efficiency, we actually mean that like you have a steady source of energy that you're able to tap into the whole time, which I actually feel like is maybe more where you're driving at. And so I think that if you've got someone who is um, very energy stable because they're primarily burning fat, then they'll be, they'll be probably experiencing fewer cognitive highs and lows related to like glucose and, and spikes and insulin spikes as well. Um, so actually they're probably, yes, probably less well, uh, less, less in need of something like an exogenous ketone as well as for people who kind of ride the waves a little bit more and that they get brain fog in between these periods where they're, they're consuming carbohydrate then maybe um, ketone exogenous ketones are a nice substitution in terms of giving the body like a cleaner, um, less spiky energy that it could, could use to maintain performance in that time. Yeah. It's all very interesting stuff. It's always cool to hear kind of when something's kind of in its uh, pioneer stages or its infancy, because there's just so many different directions you can go with this stuff. And I'm sure your interests just keep popping up as they go. Is oh, there I was going to ask, is there anything like if you could name like one or two things that you're the most excited about in regards to exogenous ketones in terms of what we might find out in the next few years? I think um, in the realm of athletics, I'm super interested to see more recovery studies published. Uh, really great paper published. I think, I think even maybe even just yesterday um, by a researcher at Dom D'Agostino's group looking at the uh, role of ketones on muscle catabolism, muscle breakdown 
he was using a model of cancer and inflammation, but I actually think for athletes in an overload block, then like this idea of using ketones to maintain lean mass and, and um, optimize body composition through that kind of way is super interesting, especially as an athlete who used to compete in a weight class sport. It's very interesting to me. So um, recovery, I think, needs to be looked at more in athletics. And then when we start to look at like health, um, then there are so many areas that interest me. There are people that are using exogenous ketone infusions for heart failure, for example, and seeing massive improvements in cardiac output in, in actual human patients using intravenous uh, ketone salts. So that's the, very, very interesting to me. And then also everything we just discussed with brain health, um, specifically in um, just sort of normal aging, but also Alzheimer's disease as well. I know there are people looking to run these clinical trials. So um, and also another area that kind of straddles both the athletic and the health is traumatic brain injury. Um, through my time working with the military, there are so many operators that get a blow to the head or a blast, blast injury, but also obviously athletes um, competing in contact sports. That's pretty common. Um, but also just in the general population, loads of people end up with work related concussions and kids get a lot of concussions as well. So this idea of um, being able to use ketones in that setting, uh, the rationale there is that <clears throat> the brain uh, after the impact, it actually goes into a hypoglucose metabolism state. So it burns less sugar, it becomes kind of insulin resistant. And that energy deprivation for a few days after the injury can cause what's called secondary injury. So you get oxidative stress and inflammation that happen days and days after you actually took the blow to the head. And we've seen there's a really, really good body of evidence in animal models that ketones could help there. So that would be like my moonshot um, moonshot thing that I know is really hard for people to investigate because believe it or not, it's not really ethical to give people concussions in science studies. Mm. Um, so, and there's not very many good biomarkers for concussion either. So that, those are my kind of three uh, buckets that I'm kind of watching and hoping that I can get involved with through my research in the next few years. This episode of the HPO podcast is brought to you by Energy CBD. Energy CBD specializes in formulating top-of-the-line THC-free CBD products. Their goal is to give customers transparent products and information in hopes to encourage a healthier and happier way of living. When used correctly, CBD has been shown to treat ailments including anxiety and depression, minimize physical pain and inflammation, and improve restorative sleep. Energy CBD specializes in oral tinctures and topical oil roll-ons using only pure CBD isolate. Tinctures are the most popular way of consuming CBD with just a couple of drops for full body relaxation. Their topical oil roll-ons are great for targeted relief. All handmade in the USA, thoroughly tested and approved by independent laboratories, this process ensures that no shortcuts are taken to achieve the highest quality THC-free CBD products. So visit energycbd.store, that's capital letters N-R-G-C-B-D.store, and for an extra 20% off your entire order, throw in the discount code capital E, capital Z, number two, number zero at the checkout. Check them on Instagram at energy.cbd and on Facebook at energycbd. Links to all these can be found in the show notes. Now, back to the show. You mentioned earlier, you know, you're looking at studies and health, looking at, you know, different ways to achieve uh, blood ketone levels, fasting, ketogenic diets and obviously exogenous supplementation. Are you finding significant differences in outcomes based on those different techniques? Uh, you know, is it all about the ketone levels? Is there some, because we talk about the underlying uh, physiology that's occurring to produce ketones and the, yeah. you know, low insulin states and 
so on and so forth. So what, what's, what are the differences that are shaken out with those mm. different methods? It totally, <clears throat> it totally depends on the outcome measure that you're interested in. Uh, I think we talked earlier about type two diabetes and in that setting, I think it's, it's pretty critical that you have the reduced carbohydrate intake to help with the weight loss and blood glucose control that you see there. But um, especially in an acute setting and in the brain, I think that m quite a lot of the things that you can do with fasting or ketogenic diet, you'll also be able to do with exogenous ketones, ac acutely anyways. So in this study where that we just discussed where they looked at brain connectivity, they did this imaging like directly after administering the exogenous ketone. <clears throat> so they're showing that you don't need to have long-term dietary changes to, to get an effect there. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating stuff. Um, what, you know, I'm just wondering uh, uh, what role protein has in all of this, particularly with athletic performance. Because one of the things I noticed going from a ketogenic diet uh, as, a, as a rowing athlete, that my performance dramatically improved when I went on this, you know, I guess crazy carnivore, higher protein than normal ketogenic diet. You know, I went from, you know, 15% of my calories coming from protein to 30, 30%. Do you find that protein has an, is another confounder? Zach and I have talked about this in many occasions that some of the research on ketogenic athletes may be due to under protein. There's been a recent study looking at increasing protein in, in, in low carb athletes, particularly with, with endurance. So any comments on protein's role? Yeah, I think, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. With um, ketogenic diet studies, it's super important to be at least reporting the protein that you're studying. And I feel like um, we, as a research community, try we try and like bucket the study and it's like, oh, this is a ketogenic diet study and that's the headline. And, you know, I see this with exogenous ketones as well, right? It's like, oh, it's an exogenous ketone study. But actually, I know that there's nuances between salts and esters and the different types of esters. So people are kind of, except that when people sell you a headline, they're trying to bucket the the study as you know and is a high level of terms as they can and we know that protein can have really protein content can have really profound effects on the immune system and on metabolism generally and all kinds of things so i think that i couldn't tell you what direction i'd expect everything to move in but i can sure as hell tell you that it's an important variable to control for and report and um, take that into account when you're interpreting a ketogenic diet study because it's, it's almost certainly going to be having a big effect on the results that you see. Yeah, that's, uh, like I said, I'm glad, you know, people are starting to recognize the differences uh, in, in that sort of stuff there. What uh, um, have you found that uh, the, uh, you know, because you talked about the sh really short endurance stuff, which I think is a lot of that creatinine phosphate system, you know, at first, 10 seconds, you know, I'm not sure exactly how much glycolysis, I mean, there's some glycolysis going on, but it's predominantly uh, that, that right there. Do you find that uh, um, more and more athletes have been trying out the ketones? Is it, is, it, is it kind of, is it still something people are talking about? I know about two years ago, it seemed like this was pretty exciting and people were doing it. Is that, is that sort of excitement sort of waned a little bit or are there still people that are, that are pursuing this? It's hard for me to comment because I'm not um, as involved with the company making like actually commercializing that product anymore. You know, when I was when I was there, it felt like we were helping to create this big buzz. And now it's certainly it's not as sort of fresh and shiny as new as it was when it did come out um, a couple of years ago. Um, it's a hard spot, right? Because you've got to get out. Um, you've got to you've got to make that like first somebody's got to make the first move into the space. 
it's always going to be a little bit ahead of, you know, having loads of years of science to back it up. So we really, you know, I think if there continue to be positive studies, then that will continue to grow as a, as a tool that athletes use. I would say that, you know, from what I, what I hear about how HVMN are going, like it's certainly uh, an area that's growing, but, you know, as we've discussed that like practical things like price and taste sort of somewhat limit their ability to just really reach more people and grow that um that awareness and get it out to more people and try it because just the barrier the mental barrier to entry for people is like well you know like i can i can spend like dollars on caffeine pills or i can spend 30 dollars on one serving of ketone drink so you know at the moment i can see why more people haven't tried it um, I'm sure that in the future, as more products become available and more science becomes available and the products get cheaper and easier to use, then I would expect a lot of people, more people to dabble with it. Zach, are you, have you tried, Zach, I remember if you've tried it. Zach, do you say you've tried it or not? I can't remember. Yeah, I've used it a few times. Um, as just like a way to see what happens, like nothing beyond like, taking it, testing blood ketones before and after just to see what happens like on the, on the meter and then, and then like intra workout and things like that. So, you know, what, when I have played around with the most, I wasn't as familiar with the recovery benefits. So I have a hard time like teasing out whether I would have noticed anything from, from that, which sounds like it's perhaps the more promising side of things. So I now in hindsight, I'm, I feel like I need to get a, get a little more into it and see if I can somehow tease that out a little bit, but you should try it um, in a hard in a hard training block. You should try it in between when a couple of days where you're back to backing, like say some volume and some intensity, something that's sort of like a bit more stressful and see how that goes. Yeah, no, I think it'd be, be a great experiment. I, cause, I mean, when I get into kind of full blown training before a big event, I'll do back to back long runs where I might have like a two thirty milers on Saturday and Sunday. So it would, be nice on Sunday to be a little less sore. I won't lie about that. I feel like personally that's where I notice subjectively the biggest benefit. So last season I was training for Ironman and just for the like month or so before the event, you end up with these weekends where you're doing your six hour ride, mm -hmm. hour and a half run off the bike. And then the next day, like another two, two and a half hour run. And the days where I used ketones around that first day, that long bike run session were the days when I would get back out and run on Sunday and run really well. So subjectively, N equals one. That's where I felt like it was noticeable, the most noticeable for me. Yeah. Well, I should get on that because uh, next year at this time, I'm probably gonna be running across the country to the tune of like 12 to 14 hours a day. So <laughs> that, if that helps out in any way or any shape and form, I'm yeah. it'd be, it'd be well, good to have I'll that tool. Make sure I can try and pick you up with that. <laughs> awesome. Brianna, do you ever get do you ever get back on the erg every once in a while, or you kind of just hate that thing? <laughs> no, I mean, I did. Spend, I spent enough hours on that to like not want to be on it that much. Although that said, when I um, when I can't um, get outside, or you know, there have been times where I've got back on, and you know, the thing that I notice the most. So I cycle and run mostly now, and I swim as part of triathlon as well. But for me, it's like this like the connecting the power of your legs and your hips and your core to the handle. So it'll be my like kind of lats and like upper back. And if I'm tense and gripping it, like maybe doing a little bit of the, not a little bit of the arm bend to try and get the connection. That's actually the bit where it's less smooth and I'll hurt. You know, I can't, I'm, I think I'm probably more like base fit than I was when I was rowing. Cause I'm just putting out hours and hours of zone two now, you know, um, 
doing less weight training, but that specific muscles, especially in the upper body is not there anymore. And um, so I feel that the next day, once I've been on the rowing machine, you have to, now at least it's been long enough that I can, you know, the worst thing about the rowing machine is that the numbers are there in front of you on the screen, every single stroke, you know, (laughs) it's like, at least with running, you know, it's on your watch and you've got some variance in terrain and this and that. But with the rowing machine, there's just no excuse, no variance in conditions. You're just there on the machine and every stroke, it tells you whether you're on it or not. And um, soon after I finished rowing, it would have just been a bit punishing to see the numbers sort of like slowly fade away from, from where they were. But now I'm that distanced from it that I can kind of accept that, that it's okay for me to pull, you know, a slower split than, than I would, you know scores still aren't bad but just emotionally it's a bit easier to accept that I'm not not at world-class level at rowing anymore which surprise surprise because because I'm not training for it anymore so (laughs) yeah I use it from time to time it's like an I know I I know what workouts to do and how I can get a good workout and all of that so it's a nice um it's definitely one of the best forms of exercise in terms of time efficiency and whole body exercise if you're doing it technically correctly um so I'd couldn't recommend people learning to use it highly enough. Um, it's a good, a good form of punishment, a good, a good machine for training all kinds of different systems and muscle groups and all of that. So I won't ever, I won't ever say I'll never get on a rowing machine, just not as often as I used to. Yeah. I, I feel like sometimes when I get burned out, I just need to need a break from it for a while, which is oh, yeah. kind of fun doing some of the stuff I'm doing now, a little bit of a variety, but, uh, Well, Brianna, this has been really educational and certainly uh, enjoyable. And I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. I think there's a lot of exciting things to come. You know, I I see stuff on ketogenic diets every single day with regard to health outcomes. And it seems like clearly there's something going on there and we're we're still in its infancy. So I appreciate you helping to to sort of advance that science, which, uh, uh, you know, I think we desperately need and uh, hopefully we'll continue to you'll continue to get support for what you do. Can you let people know where they might be able to find you, find out more about what you're doing, if you don't mind? So the easiest place to connect with me personally is on Twitter. Um, I'm at Brianna Stubbs. So um, you could tag me when you release the episode. People can find me and I try and respond to questions when people have them. So um, please, please feel free to get in touch. I love to hear from people. Um, If you are interested in finding out more about the Buck Institute, that's um, easy to search for on Google and you can read a bit more about the research that we're doing there about ketone biology, but also in all different aspects of of aging research. So it's a very, um, very cool institute to work at and I'd recommend people check that out as well. And then finally, um, if people want to try ketone ester, then the best place to get it is from HVMN um, and they can be found just through Google. Although I'd say um, once you've Googled them, I imagine they'll follow you around the internet on your Facebook ads and your Instagram ads and all that. So <laughs> if you're just casually checking it out, go on private browser. But that, <laughs> I think that's a, a testament to the strength of the company. They're a great e-commerce company and thoughtful about the products that they release as well. So um, they, and the other thing is people can get single servings if they don't want to buy a three pack, which is what HVMN offer. They can get that on a website called The Feed, which does singles of different uh, endurance nutrition pro- pro- uh, products. So um, yeah, go try it. See what you think. I'd, I'd recommend trying esters over salts if you really want that um, kick and boost and sort of instant deep ketosis. Um, yeah, try it. And let me know what you think. I'll be interesting to hear, interested to hear people's stories. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Brianna, and we'll be sure to link uh, your your uh, links to the show notes so our listeners can uh, head over and f- find you when they want to check out more about what you're up to. 
Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for having me on. I've um, been sort of fangirls of yours from a distance in the past. So it's nice to chat. And if you ever want me to, if anything um, groundbreaking comes out and you want me back on again, it'd be a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love you to have you come on again. And if the, if any breakthroughs come in with the exogenous ketone stuff, feel free to let us know. We'd love to, love to let you tell us about it. Awesome. Well, have a great day and you stay safe. Wash your hands lots. Yeah. <laughs> Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.